Hey, this is Caesar, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org slash youngadults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. John chapter 11, 1 through 44. Okay, here we go. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was Lazarus, and he was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you were always, you would always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Is this thing on? Okay, good. Nothing like a lighthearted story on a Thursday, right? Send you into the weekend. Um, Hey, everybody. Uh, My name is Tanner. I'm really glad to be with you all tonight. Um, I don't actually remember the last time I was here. I was thinking it was like a month ago, but that I think is the effects of COVID on my all of time is not what it was. Um, so it's, I think it was a long time ago. Many of you have had children and gotten married since then. Um, I have a child. His name's Jack. I told you about him last time, I think. Um, and I, is there a picture of him? No picture. Don't worry. I am Tanner Fox on Instagram. You can find, that's just all it is now. It's just pictures of my son, which is it's perfect. I really love it. But um, married to my wife, Ashley. She's great as well. And um, yeah, pastor at First Prez. I get to do mission and adult discipleship and young adults. Um, do a little bit of everything and really love that. Um, and as Caesar said earlier, love this city. Um, it's one of the best places. Well, I don't know all the places. Maybe you know all the places. Uh, it's a great place to be a pastor because pastors are like Caesar and they're kind and generous and um, not territorial and they want to see the kingdom of God grow in this city um, for its sake, not their sake. And if you look to the news right now, um, and by that I mean weird evangelical niche news, what you'll probably see is that uh, a lot of pastors around the country are being found out for all sorts of stuff which is really sad, um, and we grieve that, and we, we want those wrongs to be made right. But I know a lot of pastors who are not that way and who are submitting themselves to the lordship of Jesus and are trying to walk in humility and love, and um, I'm glad to be in a city where there's a lot of pastors like that. So that's why I get to be here tonight to talk with y'all, and I'm grateful for it. You guys have been working through the book of John uh, rather slowly, yeah? <laughs> so that's why I just did 44 verses in one night, just really fly through it. Um, no, as I was looking at this story, it's just hard to tell only half of it, and I feel like part one of the movie Dune or something, where you're like, geez, we just barely got to something of meaning. Why is it over? Um, 
so instead, we'll, we will do the whole story. It'll be relatively quick, um, but we're going to look at kind of four primary movements of Jesus, um, the way he waits, the way he reveals himself, um, the way that he weeps, and then the way that he resurrects. And hopefully it'll teach us something um, about ourselves, but hopefully it'll teach us a lot about Jesus. And so we'll do both of those things. So I'm going to pray one more time and then we'll jump in. Uh, Lord, would you join us now um, and bring light to our eyes that the word would be made beautiful and helpful and true to us. And um, yeah, we submit that we don't have the answers and we uh, need you. So we ask that you would do that tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Okay, so big story. How many of y'all have heard this story before tonight? Okay, a few of you, good. Um, John has, uh, he, he's telling, he's writing this book for a specific purpose so that you may believe, is what he says in the latter chapters of John. Um, and it's, it's said in this story too, that Jesus is, is grateful in some sense that Lazarus has passed so that the disciples will believe. So you have these kind of interesting moments, but, but really uh, theologians would say that the book of John is Christology from above. It's telling us a lot about his divinity and the way that Jesus is um, unique in that way. More, more, more uh, wonderful, uh, more messianic than any other character in the Bible to this point, but it's kind of a slow revealing, right? And the way that John writes is he'll, he'll do, Jesus will do something and then he'll also be teaching something else, right? Along the same plane. And it's simple enough that you can just look at what he does and you're like, that's awesome. Like, that's so cool. But then you can also uh, have this deeper meaning that's, that's appropriate for the story as well. I, uh, I, I liken this to the other night. I'm slowly exposing my 11-month-year-old son to all the Pixar movies because... They're great, and um, I would prefer him to prefer the movies that I liked as a kid to the movies that he'll like as a kid, because I don't like his movies as much. So I want him to like, you know, Disney's like Aladdin, or I want him to like uh, Finding Nemo's a great film, you know, really, the cinematography. Uh, but, so we're watching Finding Nemo the other night, and do you, y'all seen this? Okay, great. So the scene comes up when the sharks, they find the sharks, and... Um, these are unique sharks, right? They don't eat fish. And they're having a meeting. And I looked back at what year this movie came out. I think it was 2012. So I was 12 years old when I first saw Finding Nemo. I was amped about it. And that makes me 30, just so you don't have to do the math. And, um, sorry, 2002. Wait, wait, maybe I was 24, 23. Still loved it. Someone else do the math. Okay. Either way, uh, it hit me for the first time as I'm showing this to my 11-month-year-old. They're having an AA meeting. They're having a a fish or friends meeting, not food. Like, they're having a I'm a fish eater, like, you know, meeting. And I'm just sitting there like, what? You got to be kidding me. Like, this is here this whole time, and I just missed it? So the Bible's like that. It is. Hear me out. What's so wonderful about the Word of God is the way that you can come to it as a 12 or 24-year-old. I don't know how old I was when I first saw Finding Nemo. And then you can come back to it again and again and again and again. And 
the truth is like a corkscrew. Like you can come back to it and it's not that it's circular, that you come back to the same thing and it means the same thing, but instead you're going deeper and deeper. And so as you've worked through John, that's, that's probably been a gift to you. Some of these stories you've heard since you were a child maybe, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like he fed 5,000. And then he said, I'm the bread of life right after that. Like, what does that mean? You just fed 5,000 people out of nothing, but that's amazing, but that we could feast on you like in the Lord's Supper and, and the grace of the living God would be something that we are like hungry for and we have an appetite for it because it's real and Jesus is that thing. Like you can come back to that again and again and again and the Lord offers you uh, something to continue to grow you, to deepen your faith, to, to invite you into uh, more knowing and being known kind of all the time. And so I hope that's what our story does for us tonight is you're like, yeah, yeah, resurrection of life, got it, whatever, right? And it's like, wait, no, <laughs> this is a big deal, right? We don't, no one tells stories like this, like in the news. Why? Because this doesn't happen. This is unique. And it also brings us to a point of decision. Like it either happened or it didn't. So if you've been going along being like, I love the social justice warrior that Jesus is, but I don't really care about the other stuff, that doesn't make any sense. If that's all he is to you, he's a liar. Because he says, I'm, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. That's a serious claim. That's the claim that you get taken to a loony bin for, right? Like if people are walking around just like saying that sort of thing, you're like, hey, no, like that's weird, right? But what if it's true? What if it is? Not to overstate it, but it changes everything. Not only in a way that it's like submission to his lordship and obedience is demanded, but in like the most delightful way. <laughs> because death's a real problem. If, if you haven't thought of it much, maybe the war in Ukraine has made you think about it a little bit more lately. I know it's been on my mind a good bit because of that. I also know that it's on my mind a lot just because I'm a pastor. I've, as I've been getting to study John 11, I have two funerals to do, one this Saturday and one next Thursday. And one for a family I don't really know, and then one for a close friend's mom who's been struggling for two years. And it matters if he's the resurrection and the life. It matters me walking in that room whether or not he is who he says he was and really did what he said he did. Yeah. So... Again, lighthearted to get us to the weekend, but John says all this so that you will believe. It's not a point where you're like, well, that was a good novel, I'd, whatever, you know, move on to my next book. Like, this is the story. This, this is either the answer or it's worthless, truly. So come to it tonight with that, with an open mind gosh, what if it really means this much? Then what then for me? So um, I skipped my other, other analogy, but I've already spent enough time. So that's fine. Okay. Um, so the first kind of section, and there's, again, there's so many verses, and you can linger on so many of these things truly for a long, long time. But this whole first 20 verses has a lot to do with the setting the stage. John's a great storyteller. He invites us into moments um, in, in ways that kind of really build anticipation. And you're constantly um, seeing that Jesus is kind of, you know, 
little moments of prophecy, letting the disciples know kind of what's going on, but they tend to be rather dull on first hearing, like most times. They're, you know, they're more concerned about other things. They're, when Jesus says, yeah, Lazarus fell asleep, and they're like, well, then what's the problem? Like, we don't need to wake him up. He'll just wake up. It's totally fine. And then Jesus has to be like, he's dead, okay? <laughs> he's dead. Also, sleep is a metaphor using the Old Testament. It's like, wake up disciples. Come on, you know what I meant, right? So Jesus kind of speaks that way, but he's, he's really setting the stage. And this miracle in particular, uh, the anticipation for it has been building for quite some time now. So we, I think what y'all have been talking through is messianic miracles. Maybe you haven't used that language. I don't really know. No. Okay, great. Anyways, there's, <laughs> I'm not up to date on the podcast, so that's my bad. All right. Um, but he has all these moments where he's revealing who he is, right? Who, who is this Jesus? How does he relate to God? What are the connecting points here? So you've got the, kind of these key miracles working through. He turned water to wine. He heals the royal official's son. He heals a paralytic at Bethesda. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He heals a blind man. And again, he's always, he's always doing and teaching and doing and teaching. And they're, they're never really separate, right? He's telling us that he's, he's the God of creation, in changing water to wine. There, there aren't substances that are not uh, outside of his purview or his control. He can do with his creation what he wants, right? He's also the God of the body. He brings about healing. He brings about um, whatever's broken. He can, he can mend. He can bring it back together. He's the God of, of satisfying hunger, right? He has 5,000 people who are hungry, and he gives them uh, to their fill, but also says, and I am the bread of life. He walks on water. Water is an ancient Near Eastern kind of symbol for chaos and death. And a, a man, Jesus, can walk on it and, and actually make it even be still, right? He's revealing slowly but surely, but, but truly the great enemy that he's about to kind of have in his sights here has not yet been challenged just yet, right? Oh, so what? You can make food. I'm still going to get hungry again. So what if you can heal someone from sickness? That child still died eventually, even in our story in Lazarus, right? So what that you did that? Yeah. Hey, so what if you change water to wine? We're going to run out. It's heavy drinkers, right? <laughs> He's doing all of these things and revealing his power over this stuff. And it's like, and yet, what about death? All of those things feel like an enemy. All of them are, are related to the curse that happens in Genesis chapter 3, that, that all of creation just shatters in certain ways and, and makes life toilsome. But there's also a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent will strike the heel of the woman's offspring, but the offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And so we're getting closer and closer and asking the question, right? Of, it's been asked of all Messiah figures, can you face that enemy and prevail? Can you look death square in the eye and say no more? And that's this story. That's the answer that whether it's on your mind or not just yet, Maybe you haven't lived enough life yet to lose family members. Maybe you haven't scrolled Twitter enough to find out that war is awful and people die in it, right? Maybe you haven't actually been experientially brought face to face with something really, really sad. The saddest point being loss of life. But I've lived enough at this point. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor, got a lot of family, a lot of friends, whatever. But death is right in front of me all the time. So this answer really matters to me. Yes, I want Jesus to come and heal 
broken bodies and, and mend them. Yes, I want Jesus to have the power over the chaos of this world, but I truly would, if at the end of the day, what I'm begging him to have power over is death itself. So we've got these first 20 verses. He moves pretty quickly through them. He kind of talks to his disciples, says we have to go back this way. There's all sorts of stuff about them being worried. Like, hey, if we go back, they're gonna stone us. Remember they hated us there? And he's like, he says that weird thing about walking in the night, walking in the day. We're not gonna get into any of that. But the idea is, yes, they are going back. Thomas even says like, yep, let's go die with him. Here we go. Like, what a weird, it's like, Thomas, you're about to doubt like hard. You know, it's like, calm down, Thomas, right? So then we get into the second section where Jesus starts to reveal something and he's doing it prior to doing the miracle. So Martha comes running out to him. You remember those two, right? Mary and Martha. Which one's the busybody? The one who's running out, of course, right? So you got a little side note here on Martha still being, you know, the fixer and Mary's like, presence matters, right? And she's staying with Lazarus. Martha's like, I've got to go fix this, right? So got that little narrative going. But what an incredible claim that's made right here, right? So let's just run through these verses real quick. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. I already talked about that. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You ever been in that spot where you're like a little bit desperate, but also a little bit frustrated with God at the same time? You're like, hey man, I know you can do all things, <laughs> but your timing stinks. I'm just saying, it's not great. I know you can do it. <laughs> and Jesus is very gentle and kind when we have those sorts of questions, which is great because <laughs> I have them often. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So here's what's interesting. The idea of resurrection is actually not foreign to these folks. It's more foreign to us actually, which is a little interesting. But it's, uh, it's way out there. It's not like here in the moment. It's like way out there. And what you could read this as is Jesus with these little theological platitudes just trying to like make things okay for a minute, right? Like when anything ever goes wrong and the pastor's like, yes, but the Lord's in control. And you're like, yes, I know. Also, this stinks and I'm hurting. So don't, miss it. Jesus isn't doing that. He's not being an insensitive low EQ pastor right here um, because he actually has the power to transform this and change this. And not only is he going to do it, but he's going to do it. Why? So that they will believe. There's a tether here to the way that he's teaching about the, the way of salvation, but also how he's going to enter into this moment with only the power that, that he has. And so this is what he says to her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. I don't know if she like flipped a switch in that moment and, and like truly got it or not, but undeniably, she is, she is saying the very thing that is like abundantly true of Jesus. She's putting all the pieces together of this messianic figure, the one who can come and redeem and restore all things and save the world. She encapsulates it just in this simple response. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. 
And don't miss this too. Jesus said to her uh, that he is the resurrection and life who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's not promising that the momentary resurrection, even of Lazarus, is the thing that's going to continue. He's not saying that's the end all be all. It's, it's not actually in this moment. He says, though you die, yet shall you live. That there's a life after death, right? YOLO, no, it's not right. Um, <laughs> it's actually different than that, but only by the power of Jesus and the fact that he truly is who he said he was. So um, I just want to kind of go off on this just for, just for a minute. Um, this is what I think is so it's so wonderful and, and beautiful about Jesus is it's the, um, you guys know the Batman quote? It's like, he's not the hero we want, but the one we need right now. Jesus is the hero we want and the one we need right now. And, and here's how. John starts the book of John with the, the prologue, this like really simple but complex kind of telling of who Jesus is. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. And then he talks about how the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth. What John's telling us is that in Jesus, two things that are most necessary in terms of our need for a God and a savior come together. And these two things are transcendence and imminence. So transcendence is like big, wonderful, beyond our imagination, outside of our experience. We are finite beings that can only do so much, only have control over so much. God is different than that. He is transcendent. But we more experience the world in, in, a, in a frame of imminence, right? That's right in front of us. We feel and touch and taste things. It's, it's all right here. And so in order for us to experience a God that actually not only exceeds all of our expectations, but makes sense to us in our person that we can relate to, is the God who blends transcendence and imminence together, just like this. And the gods of the Old Testament had transcendence down. That everyone was freaked out by all those gods. They were, they were killing things and giving things to them. All that, I'm not talking about Yahweh God. I'm talking about the ancient Near Eastern gods. They had a God for everything. God of the sun and God of the sea. And then when Paul meets them, he, they even have one that's like to an unknown God. And he's like, that's really interesting. Let me tell you about that God. He's better than your gods, right? But they have transcendence and the people sit in fear, but they're not close to these gods. They, they, they don't, speak with them. They're, they're not even close. They're not on the same level, right? There's a separation there. But somewhere along the way in the last 250 years or so, we killed God and those gods. We said that transcendent junk doesn't matter anymore. And so what we took instead was primarily imminence. And we said, we want gods, but we want them to look like us. And so we have Britney Spears and Justin Bieber, right? And, and weird stuff that, that if you think about it, we're worshiping them just like any of the ancient gods will worship. We put them on pedestals and we give them all of our money and we say, here, take all of these things and make me feel like I belong somehow with a, a new song or a no, whatever. I can live vicariously through your wonderful home on whatever, blah, 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 right? We have traded all that transcendence for eminence in our gods and said, if we can't please them far off and we wanna say they don't have any control over us, then we'll bring them as close as we can and we'll make them just like us. Does that make sense? But these gods are missing all the transcendence. Do any of these people have any power 
over the chaos and the brokenness of the world or to make your life any different or better as it relates to salvation. Do they? No, of course not. And when do we notice that? In the worst moments. It, when COVID got started, however, what, 12 years ago, whatever it was, right? Or, and they're held up in their mansions and saying, oh, it's so hard. And we're all like, yes, it is. Why are you making a video? I can't. Or the war starts and it's like, guess what? Even, even this can't solve it. All your money, not that you're willing to give it, but even all your money can't solve this. The, the, the brokenness of a human heart, it doesn't fix it. And so we look to our imminent gods and say, do more. And they're like, we got nothing. But the God of the Bible is different. He takes transcendence and imminence and pours it out into the person of Jesus in a way that is not only in power and in control, he has the, the might and the right to bring about newness and restore creation. But he's also a person. He's also flesh and blood. He is relatable. He, you can talk to him. He draws near to people. It says that he even loved people. Like, like, and I think of that and I'm like, yes, he loved Lazarus and Mary because he did just spend a lot of time with them, like as just people, just like hanging out, like doing mixers and stuff and being like, yeah, I guess my, you know, the best leader I know is probably the father. I don't know. Like, like that's the kind of stuff he's, he's just doing with people. He's living life with people and he blends transcendence and imminence together and we get to see it in this story. And so how does it play out when he draws near to the actual place where you're thinking, oh gosh, God's transcendence is going to be on display and he's going to show us. He's already said it. I'm the resurrection and the life. This is what's going to happen. Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. I already said it. I got the power. Let's do this thing, right? Instead of doing that, what does he do? When he sees Mary and she comes out and she says verbatim what Martha said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. He says, take me to that area. Take me to the place. And what does he do in that moment? Alakazam, you know, he's awake, Lazarus. No, he is so patient because he's dealing with humans, like real ones, like me and you. And he slows down enough to just cry for a minute. Can you imagine the magnitude of something that could break the heart of God? Can you imagine what it must be? Like, if, if I said, hey, what would make God cry? And you didn't know this story, what might you say? I don't know, probably something a little bit, bit bigger than just one person dying. Seriously, right? Like he's God. There's a lot going on. He's seen a lot. But Christ, in a perfect blend of transcendence and imminence, draws near to his friends. He slows down and he sees that his friend is dead and death grieves the heart of God. I got to do this funeral Saturday. And this is a, I don't even know how to say this, this is a good funeral. Um, this woman lived 100 years. Her family was like, she had such a great life. <laughs> We're so glad she's at rest. That's, can you imagine living a century? Like, I feel pretty worn out, and I'm like 30. Like, she was born in the 20s. What? That's 80 years before Finding Nemo came out. Like, that <laughs> is insane. But you know what will happen when we gather on Saturday? Even though she lived a good life, even though her family is 
delighted that she died in peace? You know what will happen? People will cry. Everyone will, actually. Because when we get that close to death and actually have to look at it, and friends, our culture has removed us as far as we can from death. People used to have parents and grandparents and siblings die in their home, and they would be the ones to carry them out and bury them in the backyard. That's, what, that's how it worked. And now we have systems and structures to keep us from it. And that's not just a cleanliness thing or an efficiency thing. It's an existential terror thing. Like, I don't want to get anywhere near that because it is the great enemy. And you know what I can do about it? Nothing. I don't care who you are. Death is coming for you. It is. So Jesus draws near to his friends and stops there and weeps because death is not right. Friends that I'm going to meet with on Saturday do not have to be Christians to, to shed tears over this, right? Every funeral I've ever done has plenty of people who do not care a thing about the living God, but they do care deeply about the one who is lost. Death is wrong. Ecclesiastes talks about eternity being written on our hearts, and I think that's an implication of that idea, is that eternity is written on your heart. Therefore, when you feel your finitude, it feels wrong. Like I wasn't made for this. I don't have a taste for this. I don't have a category for this. I don't want to draw near to it. I hate it. I actually get angry about it. And whenever I get this angry about something, you know what I need? Someone to blame it on. You know what's interesting? Anytime we experience pain or death or any of these things, does that make us hate our friends and our loved ones more? We just get extra mad at them? No. What happens? Whenever you, when you get that close to something like death, what happens? It doesn't matter what they did. You're like, come give me a hug. I don't care. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. All, all the walls fall down and all I want to do is hold my loved ones as close as I can and wrap them tight for fear of losing them because we know that death feels so wrong. And the story moves forward and Jesus is able to weep and then with some simple words, call forth his friend from the grave. Ask them to remove the grave clothes. Ask him to walk in newness of life. It seems almost too simple what Christ has done in this moment. And what is so interesting to me is that I don't even have really any good thoughts on it, honestly, but other than like death drives us way closer to any of the relationships that matter most to us and then it drives us in anger and frustration towards the living God. And I can't figure that out. A lot of people I meet with that are experiencing the loss of loved ones come out angry, personally angry, like there's been a vendetta against them and God has done something tricky or evil to take their loved one from them. And I read this story. And what I see is a God who has the power for resurrection, but I also know the end of the book of John in which Christ will give his own life so that we might live. I don't know about you, but I don't have many people that would give their life for me. 
I feel like I'm a pretty decent dude. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't ask you to do it, honestly. I don't feel like I'm worth it. <laughs> I don't feel uniquely special. I don't think my life should, should equal more or cost more than yours, so much so that you should have to give yours for mine. And yet, Jesus, so willingly, walks to the cross and bears the great burden that we can't bear so that we might have life. I just want people to see that as a gift. Because even if you haven't felt it just yet, life is super hard. I've got multiple friends who are trying to start families and three of them have had miscarriages in the last couple months. And, and that's an interesting kind of death because not many people tell people about that one. So you just grieve that one alone, kind of. It sucks. And Christianity has this story that doesn't make everything okay right now, but doesn't it just make more sense of the longings in our hearts that, that there would be a God who created all things and, and would have the power to right all the things that have been wrong and heal things so far as the curse is found? Like, even if you don't believe it, don't you kind of want to? Because I've looked around and I haven't found any better stories yet of meaning and purpose Stories that can make sense of evil and brokenness. Stories that can make sense of what the heck is wrong in my own heart and the pride that I feel. So you might come to the end of this whole thing and say, you know what, I'm not convinced that God's real still. And again, people have been trying to kill God for a long time. A lot of people said it's done. But even if you kill God, you're still stuck with your grief. Like killing God doesn't do anything for your sadness or the pain or the brokenness you experience in the world. It doesn't fix it. it. It doesn't change any of that. Oh good, you've killed God. Now what? Now what, finite, eminent human? Can you face death? Really? Many people have said they can stoically, but that speaks more to insecurity to me than courage. Because facing an enemy you know you can't defeat is not courage. You just lose, and that's it. And I'm not mad, genuinely not. It makes me sad. And it also drives me to cling to the hope of the resurrection, the hope of, of Jesus Christ, the, the hope that I really don't truly understand fully, not even close. But it makes so much more sense of the way that my heart is tugged by love and beauty and desire and, and movement forward, but also it makes more sense of all the sadness and the grief and the pain that I felt it gives meaning in these places that felt meaningless. At the very least, Christ will offer his presence. I felt that so many times in the midst of pain, not an answer, but just him. Such a sweet, sweet blend of his divinity and his humanity all in one. I'll close with this. I think I'm over time, sorry. Um, 
reading this book, Steve Garber, Visions of Vocation. It's awesome if you haven't read it. So good. He talks about a moment where he was in the middle of a meeting and someone came in and asked him if, they, if he knew this person. It was a close friend and they let him know that she had passed away. It was tragic. She was young. And um, he basically says, I was very sure of all these things in my life, of my love for my wife and my kids. And the one thing that I was most unsure of was my faith in God. And I had to get up in the next hour and teach a bunch of students about the goodness of God and invite them to embrace a really hard and a really broken world, knowing that they'll probably suffer and get hurt by it. So he said he went into this season of wanting to know that he knew that he knew that God was who he said he was and that his love was real, all of those different things. And it drove him to this question of story. Maybe I can find a story that'll make better sense of all the pain, all the suffering in the world, all the experiences that I have over and over and over again. And after he went looking for these stories, he came back and found the text from John chapter 11. Just began to read the story of Lazarus and the way that Jesus was gentle and kind, personal and loving. The way that he allows us, invites us even, to shed tears over the things that are really hard in this world. And his conclusion was, was what I've kind of already said, that there is no story that can hold all of our joy and all of our sadness together like the story of Christianity. There is no person who's ever done it like Christ, to hold grief and hope together so tightly, knowing in one moment he can weep genuine tears and then knowing in another that he'll get to be able to hug his friend again. But the Christian life is in that waiting the Christian life is, is the life that we live that holds grief and hope both in high esteem and so close together, trusting in the promise of the resurrection that Jesus, in fact, is the firstborn among the dead and the first fruits of new creation. And clinging to that hope each day, I think it offers us the, the courage and the energy to not only get up out of bed, but to draw near to our friends, whether it's us who are suffering or them, to draw near to families in the midst of their suffering, to draw near in these communities or, or to Choices Women's Clinic where people are experiencing acute brokenness. Christianity is the only religion, faith system, whatever you want to call it, that has the resources to do that every single day. Because as Paul says, we are folks who grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. Christ is our hope. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, come quickly. Make haste to help us. For we are broken people in a broken world. And we've seen a lot of things that would cause us to think that brokenness is the story, is the melody to our world. But then we read moments like this, snippets of a life lived perfectly in the midst of real people and real sadness, 
and your son has said, I, I do these things so that they believe. God, would you grip our hearts with this story, the story of our king who was wounded and broken and forsaken on our behalf, willingly in humility, and yet with all power and authority, rose again from the dead on the third day as the firstborn among the dead, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for us as our righteousness, our salvation, our hope. Would you remind us of that today, O oh Lord? Would you stir in us a, a faith that we might not have known? Would you help us cling to the hope that Jesus offers even if some friends here tonight are going through things that are deeply challenging. Oh God, would you remove us from any belief or faith in ourselves? Would you remove any pride or arrogance in our hearts and instead Offer us humility to fall into dependence on Jesus. For he is good and his love endures forever. We thank you, Lord, for this story. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your kindness towards us. We pray that you would continue to transform us into the likeness of Jesus and allow us to be salt and light in this world. Allow us to move towards our neighbors with love and self-sacrifice and proclaiming the good news of the gospel that there truly is hope in the midst of a dark and dying world. Pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use the message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.